With drivers unhappy about the new conditions in their super license, they took drastic action to get their voices heard. This week I'm talking about the 1982 F1 driver strike. So get ready, because you've been summoned to the steward's office. Hello everyone and welcome back to the steward's office. My name's Syra, and yep, this week we are talking about the 1982 South African driver strike. There's been no race this past weekend, and so I thought I'd come back with a new episode of Weird and Wonderful F1. Now, I've already covered Crashgate and Spygate in this little series, so head over to those episodes afterwards if you're interested in either of those subjects. But for this week, we're taking a short view back to the past and looking at what happened in 1982. So let's get into it. Now, before the 1982 F1 season had even begun, the FISA, or FISA, which was basically the sport's governing body at the time, had changed some of the clauses to do with the driver's super license. Now, an F1 driver has to have a valid super license in order to compete in F1. You hear it a lot with rookies in F2 when they're trying to make it into F1 to make sure they have enough super license points. But there are terms and conditions that come along with this super license. One of the new clauses that was added before the 1982 season started meant that the drivers would not be allowed to criticise the sports governing body. It didn't matter how bad things got, whether the drivers weren't happy with safety measures or anything like that. They weren't allowed to say a single thing against the FISA. They'd only be able to praise them or speak about them positively, which I think we could all agree is not a healthy thing to be happening. Drivers should be able to speak out if they think there's an issue with the governing body, if they think there's something wrong in the way the sport is being regulated, because who else do you go to at that point? What else can you say? How do you try and drive change? Now, the other clause that the drivers weren't entirely happy with was the fact that they would no longer be able to take part in negotiations for potential contracts with other teams. So, teams could talk to each other about a driver, but essentially, a driver would end up having no say in where he might end up. They could be sold to the highest bidder and not really have a say in their future. If a team wanted to get rid of you and sell you to another team, they could, the driver didn't have a say. And in all honesty, I am really not sure how a governing body was able to even get away with a clause like that. It seems insane to me. Surely a driver should have a say in where and when he moves, things like his salary, working conditions. The FISA in 1982 basically wanted to take all that away from a driver. With so many of the drivers being unhappy with these changes, there were some that flat out refused to sign up to the new clauses and sign up to their super license for the year. And as the season starter approached in South Africa at the Kailami circuit, nothing had been solved. There were still drivers that were refusing to sign on to the new super license contracts. The FISA were budging on their stance on it. And so you had a load of drivers still at odds with the FISA at the season opener in Kailami. Both of the Ferrari drivers at the time, Didier Peroni and Nicky Lauda, were the ones who were the most vocal about being unhappy with their new terms. Now, a few driver representatives did meet up with the FISA to try and come to an agreement and figure things out because the drivers still wanted to drive, they still wanted to be in F1. They just weren't happy with what the FISA were trying to force on them. The thing is, the FISA really weren't playing ball here. They did not care. 
They turned around to the drivers and basically said, right, you don't want to sign on to the new super license terms. That's fine. You won't be driving. They were basically trying to strong arm the drivers into signing the new conditions because if they didn't sign, there was no super license, which meant no driving in Formula One. And I think the FISA were hoping that that would be enough to have the drivers just get on and sign the contracts. Unsurprisingly though, the drivers weren't going to be forced into signing anything that they weren't happy with. So on a Thursday, when the first practice session was scheduled, none of the drivers went out on track. The Grand Prix Drivers Association, or the GPDA, had arranged for a bus to be there at the Kailami circuit. And as the drivers began to arrive, Nicky Lauda and Didier Peroni ushered them onto the bus. There were two drivers that didn't join in, and they were called Mass and Henton. Mass had turned up to the circuit late and basically was wondering where everyone had gone. And with Henton, he technically wasn't driving for a team at that point. He wasn't an actual contractor driver. So he was sticking around the circuit in the hopes that a seat would come up for him to take. Can't blame a guy for trying, I guess, but hey-ho. So as that bus started to leave the circuit, a member of the March team did try and block the bus with his own car. But that was not going to stop the drivers. So some of them got out of the bus and they pushed the car out of the way so that they would be able to leave. Nothing was going to stop these drivers from taking a stance and leaving the circuit. And then the bus made its way to a nearby hotel and as you can imagine there was a load of media that was following it because they were probably wondering why the heck are the drivers not sticking around on circuit to drive when the practice session is just about to start. Now Didier Peroni didn't actually get onto the bus. He opted to stay behind and be the representative and try to reach a negotiation with the FISA that the drivers and the governing body could be happy with. So he was gathering all this information and giving it back to Nicky Lauda, who was at the hotel with the other drivers. But the information that was being relayed back to the hotel wasn't exactly the most positive of conversations, and definitely not what the drivers had been hoping for. Instead of listening to what the drivers were saying and understanding where they were coming from and thinking, okay, maybe we could change a few of the things in the clauses, these drivers have a point, Bernie Eccleston, who was the boss of Brabham at the time, turned around and said that he'd fired both of his drivers, Nelson Piquet, who was the reigning world champion, and Ricardo Patrice. He said that he had fired them because they were in breach of contract with the team because they hadn't turned up to practice on the Thursday. They were also getting information from the circuit saying that the Kailami circuit themselves were going to take it another step further and would be impounding the cars if the race didn't go ahead. After that came through, there was also news that the race would be postponed for a week and that every single driver that was taking part in this strike would be banned from F1. Forever. This didn't change the driver's stance though and they stayed at the hotel having commandeered a conference room. They were standing for what they believed in and even though there were some drivers who weren't too sure about the strike but were there in solidarity with the other drivers, and some drivers who were just starting in F1 a little bit younger and weren't entirely sure of why they were striking, they stuck around with the other drivers and made their stance known. Of course though, the teams were also trying to get the drivers back on track and they were trying to find ways to force the drivers to get back to the circuit. And this was especially true for smaller teams who didn't have big budgets and they needed to make their sponsors happy. They needed to make sure the cars were going out on track so those sponsorships that were on the car were getting media coverage. 
Whilst all of this was going on, though, there was a driver who did end up giving up on the strike, and that was Teo Fabi. Kyle Army was going to mark Teo's debut in F1, and he did not want to risk losing his seat before he'd even had a chance to race. So he ended up leaving the hotel. That obviously was not going to go down well with the drivers, even the ones that weren't too fussed on striking. They were meant to be there together as a unit, showing the FISA that they were all standing strong together, and yet they were having a driver run back to the circuit and leave. Now, there are some rumours that Teo Fabier escaped from a bathroom window so that he could leave and race, but he refuted those claims, and I can't lie, not sure who to believe you. The drivers, though, did end up having to keep themselves entertained, and keep themselves entertained they did. There were piano recitals, stand-up comedy from Nicky Lauder, cartoon drawings to try and pass the time quicker because they weren't budging from that hotel. In the end, the piano that was in the room was used to barricade the door and that was to stop any of the team members from trying to enter the room and force the drivers back onto the track. As the day wore on, negotiations weren't making any kind of movement, the FISA weren't willing to budge at all and all of these threats were still being made about the drivers being banned, about cars being impounded. So the drivers ended up spending the night in a dormitory with mattresses spread out all over the floor. Nicky Lauder said they could have taken single rooms in the hotel, sure, but it would have lost the sense of unity that the strike had bought. So the drivers essentially had a massive sleepover with each other. Didier Peroni headed back to the track the next morning to try and continue those negotiations. The drivers didn't want to give up. They didn't want to give in. They thought there was a negotiation and a middle ground to be found here. Mass was the only driver who went out on track that Friday. He only went out for a few laps, but he was the only driver around that wasn't striking at the time. Eventually, the FISA had given in just a little bit, and they called a temporary truce on the matter. They said that the race would go ahead that weekend, the drivers would be able to race, and that the drivers that had opted to strike wouldn't face any punishments for doing so, and that all conversations surrounding the super license clauses would happen afterwards. And so the drivers opted to head back to the Kyle Army circuit to drive, in good faith that, of course, these conversations would carry on after the race was done. Nearly all of the drivers did head back to the circuit, that is. Patrick Tambay was so fed up with the state of F1 at the time, there was a lot of issues going on with Formula 1, that the strike was just the last straw for him, and he ended up retiring on the spot. And Henton, who was sticking around to try and find a seat, did actually manage to take his seat, so that worked out for him at least. Bernie Eccleston was still absolutely fuming over what the drivers had pulled with this strike. And he refused to let Nelson Piquet, the current world champion, drive. He said that Nelson Piquet was unfit to drive due to the fact that he hadn't slept. But a medical exam of Nelson Piquet soon put that to bed and he was allowed to race that weekend. So the Kyle Army Grand Prix did go ahead and Alain Prost won the opening race of that F1 season. But as soon as the chequered flag waved, the FISA went back on their word. Every single driver who took part in that strike was handed a $10,000 fine. And on top of that, they were given a suspended race ban. It was a move that quite rightly infuriated the drivers who'd felt betrayed by the actions of the FISA. They had raced in good faith 
thinking that conversations would continue afterwards and they wouldn't be facing repercussions for the strike that they had gone on. But the FISA didn't care. They'd gotten the drivers to do what they wanted and then had banned them and fined them for the actions they had taken. But the drivers weren't going to let their governing body get away with this, so they went and appealed the decision. The next Grand Prix of the season had already been cancelled and that had given enough time for the appeal to be reviewed. And the FIA Court of Appeals were not happy with the way that the FISA were trying to control what the drivers could say and do. So the fines and bans were either reduced or taken away completely. As a result of this, the new clauses in the super license were removed with the strike proving to be a success. On top of that, the FISA did not last too long. A year later, the FIA went through a bit of a remodel and they got rid of the FISA in the process. There was a true sense of camaraderie with these drivers, and I don't think an F1 grid since has really had that sense of togetherness. They were fighting for a common cause, and whilst some people probably looked at them at the time like they were a little crazy and that a strike wasn't going to really make a difference because this was their governing body after all, it really did pay off for them and they ended up getting the working conditions and the clauses that they wanted and needed. I think Sometimes it can be really easy to look at drivers or just athletes in general and think that, yeah, they've got a dream job. They get paid crazy amounts of money, they get fame, fortune, and they're doing something they absolutely adore in most cases, right? But that doesn't mean that the job is always perfect. And the Kyle Army strike in 1982 is the perfect example of that. But those drivers got up and did something to make it change. Even if a few of them were a little bit more reluctant, it did end up benefiting the entire grid. Honestly, this is one of my favourite stories from F1, just because of that sense of togetherness that those drivers had. F1 is a really single-person sport. Even when you have a teammate in your team, you're still competing against them. They are your main competition, really. And for me, I think what this strike showed is that as much as these drivers love racing and they want to compete against each other, and sometimes there might be bad blood between drivers because of that competition, when there is something that they all believe in, that they want to take a stand for, they can put all of that aside to stand together. So for me, it definitely is one of the more interesting stories. I know this episode is a little bit of a shorter one, but like I said, it was one of the stories I wanted to cover and I hope for newer F1 fans or F1 fans that might not have known the story, this was quite interesting for you too. If there are any other weird and wonderful F1 stories that you would like me to cover, drop me a message or a comment on any of my posts on TikTok and Instagram. You can find me at stewards underscore office on both of those platforms and I will try to get to them. Next week, I will be back with an Austrian Race Grand Prix review. We are heading out to the Red Bull ring, where I am sure Red Bull are going to be aiming for their 101st win. Aston Martin are going to be heading out there, trying to close that gap with Red Bull. We'll see how Williams fare with their new upgrades and just how the midfield battle pans out as well. And of course, it is a sprint weekend, so there are extra points up for grabs and also the potential that Fernando Alonso could overtake Sergio Perez in the championship standings this coming weekend. Now, that would be a sight to see. Thank you guys so, so much for listening and Jochen Vaur. Make sure to follow this podcast wherever you listen to them. It means so, so much to me. So thank you for that. And I will see you guys the next time you're summoned to the steward's office.